Father, let this not be a time where we are listening to a lecture, but rather a time where we experience a redemptive event. May we be moved by grace, by the grace that moved our sins and placed them onto Jesus' account, by the grace that placed his righteousness onto our account. God, challenge us, help us, and wreck us afresh by this text. Holy Spirit, every word, every syllable, every truth is in vain unless you show up and start moving. Move among us. Our Father, we love you above the powers of language to express. We have great love for you, but our love isn't bottomless. So we rejoice this moment that our salvation doesn't depend on our love for you, but on your love for us. Our love can be imperfect and staggering because your love is perfect and bottomless. I'm opening your word to your people. Help them to feast on it, to bank on it, to rest on it, and to trust on it. Help us never to delay when your word invites us to advance. This is our corporate plea. Amen. As Paul lays out his mantra on preaching, I want to lay out FFC's theology of preaching. We strive to live out this text. This is not something we merely assent to. We try to practice it. Preaching is not something that is done haphazardly around here. There's thought put into it. There's theology behind it. If someone were to ask you, what is the preaching at your church like? How would you respond? If someone asked you, what is unique about the way FFC preaches? Would you have an answer? Do you know the theology behind the preaching of the church you attend? This text walks out Paul's theology of preaching and FFC's theology of preaching. So let's go at the passage like this. The convictions behind FFC's preaching, verses 1 and 2. The preachers behind FFC's pulpit, verses 3 through 5. The implications for FFC's members. The convictions behind FFC's preaching, the preachers behind FFC's pulpit, finally, the implication for FFC's members. We're going to take them one at a time. First, the conviction behind FFC's preaching. Notice verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul is thinking back to three years ago when he first planted the church in Corinth. He's going down memory lane and he's taking the church with him. Remember three years ago when I came to you? Do, Do you remember how I preached? Do you remember the theology behind my preaching? I'm not even talking about the theology in my preaching. But do you remember the theology behind my preaching? 
There were two things I avoided in preaching. I determined for them to be absent when I am present delivering the word. I did not preach with lofty speech, nor did I preach with cultural wisdom. Apparently, Paul didn't hit them with flourishes of eloquence. He avoided flowery oratorical language. The Corinthians were used to spell-binding speeches delivered by world-renowned philosophers. Paul wasn't interested in giving them what they were used to. He adopted a more restrictive course, cutting across the stream of cultural expectations. It seems he wasn't huge on contextualizing with the Corinthians. He's stuck in a model that looks foolish to sophisticated Corinth. He didn't try to impress them with polished speeches. He didn't overwhelm his audience with persuasive presentations. I, he says, I, I didn't come with an adrenaline-charged, intellectually sophisticated, award-winning speech. I'm not a professional lecturer. I'm a gospeler. One Brit pointed out that human eloquence can move men and can move men to action. Vast audiences came to hear Hitler. He had almost a hypnotic effect on them. They would cheer and chant. He could move them to tears or rage. He gave them hope and purpose. Shakespeare could provoke the same response with his words. Rhetorically gifted and passionate speakers can sway crowds with their oratory feats, which leads us to our first conviction. The preacher's goal is not to move the audience to wow, but to move them to worship. The preacher's goal is not to move the audience to wow, but to move them to worship. Paul preached in ways that forced the hearer to concentrate on the message not the messenger. A certain church had a beautiful stained glass window just behind the pulpit. It depicted Jesus Christ on the cross. One Sunday there was a guest minister who was much smaller in height and width than the regular pastor. A little girl listened to the guest for a time, then turned to a mother and asked, where is the man who usually stands there so we can't see Jesus? It's possible for men to so magnify themselves and their gifts that they eclipse the cross. Preaching is not something to be used by men to gain admiration and praise of the hearers. The pastors of this church, our job is to get out of the way so you can see the cross. And this leads us nicely to our second conviction. I am not preaching for your applause. I am preaching for God's approval. I am not preaching for your applause. I am preaching for God's approval. Paul did not preach to please or entertain his audience. He possessed a dogged refusal to play to the crowds. What does the verse say he preached? The testimony of God. The testimony of God, that's the witness of God, the words of God, that's divine authority. Paul preaches words that originated with God, not with himself. Paul had no intention of being original. 
He desired to be faithful. He, unlike the Greek philosophers of Corinth, didn't attempt to deliver new information. Paul preached old information, inspired information, the testimony of God. There was a certain integrity in Paul's delivery of the word. He turned, he turned away from showmanship and self-reliance. He gave them a simple, unadorned, uncomplicated delivery of God's word. He confined himself to a straightforward presentation. Like the Corinthians, Americans have a preoccupation with the packaging. We love to be entertained and informed. We want our preachers to be clever and witty, appealing and pithy, winsome and funny, and on, and on top of the latest cultural trends. These are all requirements that are not found anywhere in God's qualification for the office of a pastor. God's preachers must strive to be faithful, not attractional. Attracting a crowd is very easy because people are like a litter of puppies. It's quite simple to get them to frolic over to you. You just hold out a little stuffed animal or doggy treats in the form of self-help or a tech-savvy presentation. See, Paul was aware of attracting people to the wrong thing. If you are attracting people with anything other than the testimony of God, it's prostituting the pulpit. Just the other day, I saw a church in Nevada planning to drop 10,000 Easter eggs from a helicopter on Easter. Yes, friends. This is exactly what Jesus intended when he walked out of the grave saying, I'm alive forevermore. <laughs> now you go get those Easter eggs. The third conviction behind our preaching is this. No amount of human eloquence can convert a human soul. No amount of human eloquence can convert a human soul. This is why Paul refused it. Human eloquence. Human eloquence, it can entertain the hearer. It can hold attention span. It can make the lips smile. It can make the hands clap. But it can't bring life. You need more than lofty speech and an explosive personality. For you teachers and preachers in the room, beat this into your heart. No amount of human eloquence can convert a human soul. Your eloquence and your jokes are like holding up a candle to help the sun shine. The illuminating power is already there. You, you don't need to assist. You can preach until your tongue rots out of your mouth. But no conversion will ever happen unless God converts the soul. One more conviction before we leave verse 1. This text gives us no room for a sloppy delivery or a sloppy presentation of the cross. This text gives us no room for a sloppy delivery or a sloppy presentation of the cross. Well, um, Paul didn't preach with lofty words, so that means I don't have to study. Paul didn't give the Corinthians wisdom, so that means my sermon doesn't have to make people think. 
Paul didn't major on delivery so I can be sloppy in my attire and delivery and presentation. No, no, no. Lazy preachers have no right to point to this text to excuse their lack of study. Paul is not disparaging learning or eloquence or diving deep in the scriptures. This is not intellectual preaching versus unintellectual preaching. Eloquence in and of itself is not wrong. It's how it's used. The power to convert a soul resides not in our eloquence, but in the gospel. There are two ways to distract from the message. Being too shabby or being too showy. We want to avoid both. Verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The first word of verse 2, 4, is an explanatory word offering reasons for the behavior just noted. Paul gave two negative statements about how he did not preach. And now he gives one positive statement about how he did preach. I did not preach with lofty words or attempt to dazzle you with my wisdom, but I did preach. I did preach Jesus, and I preached him crucified. Paul didn't deliver lofty words. He delivered cross words. First, he preached Jesus and who he is. Then he preached Jesus and what he did. The person of Christ and the redemption of Christ. What Paul did not mean, what Paul did not mean is that he only expounded those parts of Scripture that dealt directly with Christ's atonement. He's not saying he only preached the cross, nothing else. He's saying everything else he preached had Jesus' death as its point of reference. He preached Christocentrically. He makes it his habit to get to the cross. We, like Paul, have that same theology behind our preaching. It is our fifth conviction. No matter where the text starts, we always get to Christ. No matter where the text starts, we always get to Christ. Paul was preaching Christ from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. Every Bible text testifies to Christ. The preacher must bring to view what exists already in the text. One cannot find a Christless text in the Bible. No text remains silent concerning him. Now, of course, in the biblical text, Christ is not always present in his pre-incarnate or incarnate form. The conviction behind Christocentric preaching attests that every text stands somewhere in relation to Christ. Christ doesn't stand in every text, but every text stands somewhere in relation to him. Marita states it like this. Every text will point to Christ futuristically, refer to Christ explicitly, or look back to Christ implicitly. Can I hit you with a, can I hit you with a flurry of quotes? J.L. Packer said, Scripture is God preaching. And God is always preaching about Christ. Graham Goldsworthy, the Australian, confirms, all biblical text 
testify in some way to Jesus Christ. This makes him the center of biblical revelation and the fixed reference point for understanding everything else in the Bible. Christ crucified was Paul's fixed reference point for understanding everything else in the Bible. No matter what the text is covering, we always preach it in light of the cross. And I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not, but there's been a shift in preaching. Even among churches like ours. Preaching has gone from being theological to therapeutic. Preaching has gone from being theological to therapeutic. Therapeutic preaching approaches the text first to answer, how can this text make you feel better about yourself? Most preaching today is what I call motivational preaching. It's, it's the pastor using the text as a tool to tell people, you can do it. The preacher becomes Rob Schneider, and it doesn't matter what movie or what sermon. He's always saying, you can do it. It's created a culture where churched people sit in pews and listen to expository preaching and think, oh, that's academic. Oh, is, this is seminary. Oh, oh, why isn't he telling me I can do it from the text? When they come and listen to the Bible, they are looking for practical tips, motivational talks. How can this text help me have a better marriage? Make more friends, be happier, excel at my job, help me reach my dreams. How can this text be in my corner cheering me on? They've been so conditioned to therapeutic preaching that anything else seems foreign. Which is why we must teach you this. Every text in the Bible doesn't need to supply you with an immediate application in order to be relevant to your life. Every text in the Bible doesn't need to supply you with an immediate application in order to be relevant to your life. Daniel Hurd, our lead pastor, told me this in passing one day, and I've kept it close ever since. If it points you to Jesus, that is enough. It doesn't have to say you can do it. But it must say, Jesus has done it. If the only thing I did in, in a sermon was exposit the text, show you how it pointed to Christ, if I gave you no immediate practical applications from the text, would that be sufficient for you? I think it would. Because your ultimate need is to see Jesus. You may have other felt needs, but this is your real need. When you go through hard times in marriage, you know what you need? Not 10 tips to a healthy marriage. You need to see Christ. When you've been falsely accused, you know what will sustain you? Jesus Christ. When you've been wrecked by a disease, when your child breaks your heart, when you've been gossiped about by friends, you know what will sustain you? A vision of Jesus Christ. The prosperity gospel was once flourishing in our country. It's not anymore. 
Now it's the you can do it gospel. Joel Osteen's gospel isn't dominating the landscape. It's Stephen Furtick's gospel. This text exists to cheer you on. To help you accomplish your goals. Friend, this text exists to reveal Jesus. The one who dealt with your greatest need. The need of salvation. God's wisdom is not manifested in tips for practical living. It's manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. The convictions behind FFC's preaching, verses 1 and 2, the preachers behind FFC's pulpit, verses 3 through 5. The convictions behind FFC's preaching, there were five. Now the preachers behind FFC's pulpit. We will build a bridge from the ancient text to our modern context. From their pulpit to our pulpit. Before we look behind our pulpit, let's look behind their pulpit. Behind their pulpit was a man named Paul. The greatest missionary church planner to ever exist. He's painted a picture of what it looked like while preaching to them three years ago. Here's the picture. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. <laughs> Paul says, when I was with you, I was feeling far from strong and rather shaky. Paul had been imprisoned and beaten in Philippi, driven out of Thessalonica and Berea. He arrived in Corinth exhausted, run down emotionally and physically. He said he was weak. He was weak from external hardships faced while preaching the gospel. He was weak from physical infirmities. He was in constant need of a physician. He traveled with one, Luke. 2 Corinthians 10.10 describes Paul, his bodily presence as simply weak. He's weak externally and he's fearful internally. The internal fear caused external results. Trembling. Much trembling. While in Corinth, God had to tell Paul in Acts 18, 9, stop being afraid. Paul went through periods of despondency. He didn't live in those. God eventually brought him out. But there were times. Paul presenting himself as weak is the exact opposite of an ideal Greco-Roman orator. They had swagger. Paul had no swagger. A weak and fearful orator was a repulsive sight to the Corinthian culture. <laughs> weak, fearful, trembling. Do you want a pastor that looks like this? Or would you rather have a pastor that never shows weakness? Friend, celebrate the weaknesses of those who preach to you. Celebrate the weaknesses of those who preach to you. Pastors are insecure and often an uncomfortable bunch 
sometimes very awkward. Sometimes pastors are better with crowds than one-on-one. A friend of mine, whose name will go unmentioned, had a dream come true. He always wanted to meet Pastor John Piper. And he was given the opportunity to go to dinner with him. And I, I recall him recounting the story to me. He said, I, I always wanted to meet Pastor Piper. I've read all of his books and listened to so many sermons. We sat at the table, just the two of us. Then my friend said, it was the most awkward meal I've ever had. I just wanted to get up and run away. Pastor Piper is just very awkward. FFC, your three pastors are probably no different. Sometimes insecure and often an uncomfortable bunch. Here's what I'm taking too long to get at. We don't present ourselves as proof for the reliability of our message. We don't present ourselves as proof for the reliability of our message. Paul had times of weakness. And so do your pastors. Here's confession time. I don't like being weak. There have been many moments, many days in pastoring this church that I've felt very weak. It could have been something that was said that made me feel weak. It could have been something financial that made me feel weak. It could have been a sin issue in the church that made me feel weak. There have been seasons where my strength leaves me and I have nothing but weakness. My wife could certainly recount these moments. And Pastor Daniel Hurd could probably recount these moments. And I'm not the only pastor here who has had them. We've all had them. We hate those moments of weakness. But God says, you need them. This is not a course you can drop. You must take it. I enroll all my preachers in this course. One man said it this way. It is the nature of the cross that it cannot be preached elegantly or brilliantly, but only in weakness. It is the nature of the cross that it cannot be preached elegantly or brilliantly, but only in weakness. My wife is reading a book by John R. Stott. This quote isn't in the book, but John R. Stott said, it seems that the only preaching God honors through which his wisdom and power are expressed is the preaching of a man who is willing in himself to be both the weakling and the fool. God did this so preachers can't pat themselves on the back. It highlights the message, not the messenger. And church, your message to your weak pastors needs to be afflicted pastor to Christ draw near. Verse 4. And my speech and my wisdom were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul didn't give plausible words of wisdom. What are plausible words of wisdom? Paul refused to employ rhetorical arts, clever debates. His reliance didn't rest in brilliantly arranged arguments. Because he wasn't flashy, the average Corinthian viewed him as foolish. 
Man's wisdom elevates himself and lowers God. Paul effectively proclaimed Christ with no tricks. He renounced the seduction of spin. You can so intellectualize the cross that it loses its offense. Or so emphasize your comedy that the offense of the gospel is overshadowed. Notice Paul did not say, I had a little plausible word of wisdom mixed in there. No, there was none. He didn't garnish the cross with man's wisdom. That's mixing philosophy with, with God's revealed word. And a hybrid approach brings no power at all. I think it was D.A. Carson, that Canadian theologian who said, sooner or later, it dilutes the gospel. Ever so subtly, we start to think that success more critically depends on thoughtful sociological analysis than the gospel. Barner becomes more important than the Bible. We depend on plans, programs, vision statements. But somewhere along the way, we have succumbed to the temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. What Paul is saying to that local church is what every pastor of FFC wants to say to this local church. I will not manipulate you. I will demonstrate the power of God to you. I will not manipulate you. I will demonstrate the power of God to you. Verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul strenuously avoided manipulating people. Paul's weakness afforded the most convincing demonstration of power. His preaching was a demonstration, not a performance. A demonstration speaks of legal proof presented in court. It's a technical legal term describing irrefutable evidence offered in the court of law. It wasn't Paul's years of ministry experience that gave him the power. The power resided in the simple gospel. Paul avoided manipulation in the preaching event. And so must we. We have access to the power of advertising. The power of emotional manipulation. The power of environmental lighting. And we need to settle for nothing less than the power of God. We must reject manipulative ways of proclaiming Christ or using manipulative devices in preaching. How many of you have ever been to a Christian camp? Would you raise your hand? Okay. <laughs> you remember how these Christian camps used to deprive kids of sleep? They, they kept them so busy playing games and out late at night and early, up early in the morning. They deprived them of sleep so their stamina was worn down and they were more likely to make merely emotional decisions. I think they all did it unintentionally, but it happened and still happens. Sadly, we are surprisingly like the Greeks of Paul's day. We rely on rhetorical skills rather than the power of God. 
Beloved, when you invite non-Christians to come into the service, you don't need to think, oh, I hope Kyle's real funny today. I hope he speaks on something practical. I hope he shows he's in touch with the culture. I have non-Christians here and I want them to really like the service. Friend, hope that the gospel penetrates that heart and not that a joke would make them crack a smile. Let the gospel do its work. This service is not designed for non-Christians. They are not going to like it unless the Spirit starts working in them. Mark Dever says, he, he tells pastors, he says, pray so much in your service that nominal Christians are bored that you talk so often to the God they only say they believe in. We can preach loud and long, but no sinner will ever be converted unless the Holy Spirit draws that soul to Christ. What does verse 4 say? A demonstration of the Spirit. The Spirit's power manifests itself through the proclamation of the gospel. The power of the cross is mediated through the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit that brings conviction. It's His Spirit that heightens attention. It's His Spirit that woos the sinner. It's his spirit that makes Christ beautiful. Non-Christians, I love that you're here every Sunday. I absolutely love it. I love that some of you take more notes than our members. <laughs> I never approach this pulpit thinking, if I really lay it out well today, they will become Christians. I just need to say it in the right way Make them feel it in their bones. I never think that. I am completely dependent on the Spirit of God to draw you. I have no confidence in my rhetorical abilities to draw you. I have all confidence in God's Spirit to draw you. And maybe He's doing it now. You're starting to see your own sinfulness. You're starting to see your sin as offending a holy and righteous God. Your sin never bothered you before, but now it does. You can't live with the sin anymore. You must confess the sin now. That's new. You must repent. You are seeing Jesus' work as beautiful. You've never seen the cross as beautiful before. And you keep coming here and hearing how bad of a sinner you are. But you can't stop coming because deep down you know it's true and you know this Christ is the answer. What's happening to you? The Spirit is drawing. The Spirit is convicting. The Spirit is about to convert or maybe He's already converted you. The Spirit does the work of conversion, not the preacher. The preacher may be a tool in the hand of the Spirit, but it's all the Spirit's work. The Spirit gives life. I have never given anyone life. Ever. Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul didn't come to start a religious fan club. 
You know how many people attended a conference sponsored by Paul? None. He didn't have them. He purposefully designed his preaching to keep his hearers from trusting in his ability as a preacher. So pastors and teachers and leaders in this church do not build people into you. You just deliver the mail. Don't showboat. You can talk about the Christ, the, the, you can talk about the cross in ways that empty it of its power. There, there is a way you can preach that the Spirit of God and His power will not be demonstrated. If someone is persuaded to make a profession of faith because of your clever argumentative skills, they will abandon the faith when someone with greater argumentative skills comes along. A faith that depends on clever reasoning will be demolished by so-called clever reasoning. If human wisdom is used to win a man, then that man's faith stands in human wisdom, not in the cross of Christ. Paul helps all preachers here. Make sure they are Christ converts, not yours. Church, don't let your faith rest in a Paul or a Kyle or a Dan or a Daniel. Don't let your faith rest in a Paul or a Kyle or a Dan or a Daniel. If we had elders with different names, that would have been more powerful. But <laughs> all of our elders here have the same name. Do not put more in your pastors than is healthy. Do not allow your faith to rest in us. Let it rest in Christ. If your faith rests in us, I promise you, you will bolt from Christianity. We will fail you. We will disappoint you. We will not live up to your expectations. Only Christ can sufficiently sustain your faith. We've seen Paul's manner of preaching we've seen Paul's content of preaching and now we see Paul's result of preaching what is the result it is this his people's faith rests in the power of God not the power of Paul three movements in the text uh, the, con the convictions behind FFC's preaching verses 1 and 2 the preachers behind FFC's pulpit, verses 3 through 5. Now the implications for FFC's members. The convictions behind FFC's preaching. There were five. The preachers behind FFC's pulpit. They are weak. Now the implications for FFC's members. The first implication. Parents. Your children need Christocentric preaching more than any other kind of preaching. Your children need Christocentric preaching more than any other kind of preaching. They are preached to all the time. Every time they open a magazine, every time they scroll social media, every time they read a book, every time they speak to another kid at school or on a sports team, every time they watch a YouTube video, there are preachers everywhere. Are you getting them under Christocentric preachers? They need to hear Christ preached. Who he is. 
And what he did, the person of Christ and the redemption of Christ, love your children well and constantly put them under Christocentric preaching. Also, parents, depend on the Spirit of God to convert your children. Not a preacher or a children's ministry or adventure club. Don't think any of those things are the answer. Pray for the Spirit to bring your little one to Christ. The second implication. Christian, your evangelism doesn't depend on your perfect delivery. The gospel is the power of God to convert the sinner, even through your stammering. Christian, your evangelism doesn't depend on your perfect delivery. The gospel is the power of God to convert the sinner, even through your stammering. Don't make evangelism about yourself. The more evangelism is about you, the more discouraged you will become. Share the gospel with that unbelieving parent. Share the gospel with those antagonistic co-workers. Give your neighbor more than cookies. Give them the gospel. You will stumble and fall. You will hesitate to answer a question. You will probably say something you wished you could take back. But the power doesn't rest in your seamless delivery of the gospel. It rests in the gospel itself. As long as you get to the gospel, you are fine. You can't make the soil good if it's not good. You are not commanded to do soil work. You are commanded to do seed work. You spread the seed. You throw the gospel on all types of soil and then sit back and watch the gospel do its thing. I mean, how ridiculous would it be for, for a farmer to say, well, the seed just kind of stumbled out of my hand. It fell out in an unglorious manner. But I wanted to lightly cast it so it went into the air and beautifully flipped over and over before it touched the ground. Stop that nonsense. Get the seed on the ground. You can't make the seed grow. The seed doesn't do any better if it ungracefully drops out of your hand or gloriously flips out of your hand. Your hand doesn't determine the growth. The power is in the message, not the messenger. The third implication. Feeler. Preaching is not dead. It is God's ordained medium for teaching in the corporate gathering. Preaching is not dead. It is God's ordained medium for teaching the corporate gathering. Feelers. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by feelers? This is not a derogatory term. I'm not speaking down at anyone. I'm making an observation. Feelers are those who are in touch with their emotions. They love to talk things out. They really enjoy sharing. There's a temptation to value sharing over preaching. To value small groups over the corporate gathering. Friend, you need the preaching event. God has designed a major part of your spiritual growth to happen right here. You don't know what I've been through, Kyle. Ha have you been exposed to a bully pulpit? 
men who use the preaching event to get their way or demean you or build themselves up? Just because someone has abused the preaching event doesn't mean you need to throw away the preaching event. Just like you don't need to eradicate fatherhood when you come across a bad father. I read an account recently where someone moved to a very liturgical church and she said, what was so refreshing about this meeting is that there was no emphasis on preaching. <laughs> she was able to escape the pulpit through liturgy. God never intended for the pulpit to be abused or for it to be something you need to escape from. He intended it for your spiritual growth. I'll be the first to tell you, you leave bully pulpits, but don't leave the pulpit. Why do we preach here? We, we could do dramas, fireworks, light shows. Why do we keep it so simple at FFC? Because the preaching event is God's method of maturing the saints during the corporate gathering. Let's own, own the preaching event as a community of faith. Let's approach it as an act of worship. Doing it, we receive a message from God, not just about God. And that's why we do expository preaching here and only do that. We desire for you to encounter God in the text the fourth implication. Hear, listen for the cross in every sermon. Hear, listen for the cross in every sermon. I know for you non-Christians, the preaching of the cross sounds ridiculous. It's the most offensive dimension of the gospel. It's a brutally beaten, naked, Middle Eastern man, bleeding, humiliated, gasping for air on a cross. I know that's what you see. But we see salvation. You non-Christians, you could understand the big deal if I were giving stock market tips. But you struggle to understand why I give the cross. The cross is God's predetermined affection for us. This is not a relic of the past. It has the very power to change lives and to change eternities. Jesus bore the wrath we deserved on the cross. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. He took our penalty and we walked away with his precious sinlessness. There was a divine exchange that took place. That single act saved our souls. And the proof that the son's payment for our sins was accepted the proof that it was accepted by the Father came three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. This is why we love to hear the cross preached. This is why we glory in an instrument of death. This instrument of death means our means of salvation. Now I'm going to close by quoting Martin Luther who said, when I hear this message proclaimed, I feel as though Jesus died only yesterday. Martin Lloyd-Jones adds, when I hear the cross being preached, I feel like getting saved all over again. <laughs> Father,
Thank you. Thank you for the privilege that is ours to call you Father. Abba, Father. Wherever we are, whatever we're going through, we can cry, Father. And because of your son's cross, you hear us. Bless your holy name. We praise you. Amen.